Hi, this is Stephen Laddick. And I'm Kent McPhail. Welcome to What the M, the podcast about the mortgage default servicing industry. What the M is a bi-weekly podcast with new episodes dropping every other Friday. So, Mr. Laddick, how are you doing today, sir? Never had a bad day, Kent. Great to be here. It's finally summer up here in the Northeast. It's a beautiful, gorgeous day. So our show here, we were taking a uh, bit of a summer vacation ourselves from this show, and we were going to start season two in September, but we decided that when an important case comes along, we should have a show. So good to be here back in the summertime, Kent. Yeah, I agree completely. It's always good to get to visit with you. Uh, I know you came down a few weeks ago, and I'm afraid you brought the weather with you and then left and left it behind. I mean, we, we have been having nonstop rain, almost like fall weather that's kept us from being able to uh, do my favorite pastime, which is offshore fishing. But so the topic today that, that brought us uh, brought us to having this episode is the Supreme Court uh, came down with a decision in the Flambeau Band of Lake Superior Chippewa Indians versus Coughlin, where they basically made a ruling that uh, the bankruptcy code abrogated the tribe's sovereign immunity, which was a pretty big departure from prior law. And to that end, we've also have a guest with us today who uh, is an expert in these matters. Um, our guest attended University of Alabama, where she obtained a BA in English. She then attended University of Akron School of Law, where she got her juris doctorate. After graduating, she practiced for about eight years doing some general practice, civil defense, representing creditors. Uh, around 2008, she transitioned into a position as a staff attorney with the Porch Band of Creek Indians. They have a reservation a little bit northeast of Mobile. Uh, in 2008, she opened her own firm, which was also heavily focused on tribal law and uh, in 2016, she became the assistant attorney general for the tribe. In that role, she handles everything from employment matters to uh, state and federal compliance regulations relating to the tribe. Please welcome to the show, Marilyn Lyles. Good welcome. afternoon. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. We truly appreciate it. And why don't we just jump right in? That's an interesting background that Kent was talking about. Tell us a little bit about your career and how you ended up in tribal law. Right. After school, I entered into pretty much a general civil practice. Really got into it. And, you know, as they say, law school doesn't prepare you for the bar. And the bar doesn't prepare you for practical practice. <laughs> so uh, one of the the biggest things that I think really helped me and really got me started was I did a lot of creditor work in Mobile. Uh, I worked for a firm in Mobile that, again, did largely c creditor work. My mentor was Ben Stokes, and uh, he's he was very well known in the field he uh, believed in trial by fire, and uh, I got a lot of experience with him in that regard. After that, I did mostly a, a lot of insurance defense work on the litigation side, and then due to you know family constraints, decided to kind of shift my shift my work to more of an in-house counsel position, and that's kind of where I've 
I've ended up, it works well with the whole work-life balance and uh, it's been good to me. So interesting point. She referenced Ben Stokes and Ben Stokes was also uh, one of my mentors, obviously several years prior to Marilyn being there. And <laughs> Ben very much loved, you know, he would pile on stacks of files and, and push yes. you out the door to court. And, you know, God forbid you came back with a negative result. He just couldn't conceive how we could possibly ever lose a case. But yeah. well, Marilyn, as far as this Coughlin opinion that came down, can you outline for our listeners sort of the procedural posture of how it got to where it did? And um, what are your thoughts about the opinion? Sure. Essentially, as you said before, the Lop de Flambeau band, they have a wholly owned tribal business called Lend Green. It's kind of like a short-term loan online company that they had set up. Well, they loaned money to Mr. Coughlin. He fell on some hard times, wasn't able to pay. He found bankruptcy and they continued to try and collect in bankruptcy, he argued the tribe was violating the automatic state provisions, or Lynn Green was. The tribe through Lynn Green asserted their tribal sovereign immunity, of course. Initially, they were successful. Uh, on appeal, they reversed that. Yeah, first uh, Circuit Court of Appeals. Yes. Well, when it got to the Supreme Court on cert, because there was a split of authority, I want to say the Ninth Circuit and the Sixth Circuit have uh, conflicting views on it. The Sixth Circuit said, no, it doesn't apply with the Ninth Circuit saying that it did. So they granted cert to resolve that conflict of law. At the end of the day, which is a little surprising by an 8-1 vote, right. the Supreme Court found that the tribe didn't have sovereign immunity and that it was abrogated by the bankruptcy code. The newest justice, Contendry Brown Jackson, wrote the opinion the loan to center was Gorsuch. And essentially, they focused on the phrase foreign and domestic governments and basically said, without question, the tribes are governments. Obviously, they have domestic characteristics because they exist within the territory of the United States. And even that alone, it, even ignoring the, the rest of it, they took that definition as a very broad definition and said that the code basically meant every single foreign or domestic government under the sun, which would include the tribes. And that's how they kind of came to their ruling. This case is one of basically statutory interpretation of the text of the bankruptcy code, specifically that definition, which gives a pretty exhaustive list of the types of governments. But the word tribe or tribal doesn't appear anywhere right. in that definition. They acknowledge that it's supposed to be a clear statement. But they also said you don't have to use magic words, which was kind of interesting to me because, again, there are statutes where tribes are mentioned specifically. Um, here you don't have that at all. So I understand what they were saying as far as the magic words are concerned, but there's nothing in here at all. So, again, for someone that's represented tribes in the past and creditors in the past, it, it was it's a little bit of a blow. Let's talk a little bit about the impacts of the decision. In some ways, it's it's a bit of a narrow decision in that it's it's strictly bankruptcy. It's not waiving sovereign immunity in any other context. And there's somewhat of a public policy type of decision here that the court's looking at, you know, debtors and fresh start and saying, you know, people shouldn't be able to harass debtors. I think that some of the policy considerations over overriding there. 
But Ju- Justice Gorsuch has some some good language in his dissent, too. So are there other effects that we're going to see down the road from this decision? I mean, this case involved a payday loan, which we've seen the federal government trying to heavily regulate the payday right. lending area. So do you see any implications that go beyond the facts of this case? For an attorney that represents tribes, you worry about any decision that seems to cut away at any kind of tribal sovereign immunity. It is in bankruptcy court, but there are other instances. Similar arguments have been made. It was uh, Myers versus Atta Tribe of Indians in Wisconsin. It's a 2016 case out of the Seventh Circuit. They upheld the Oneida tribe's defense of sovereign immunity, holding that Congress did not unequivocally abrogate the sovereign immunity of tribes in FACTA. From what I understand, I haven't done a whole lot of FACTA work, but this this involves printing out or showing a person's credit card number on receipts. And it was a class action case, and they tried to sue the tribe, saying that they had violated that. Again, they upheld sovereign immunity. I kind of wonder how much spillover we're going to have from this. The the thing that's really interesting to me about it is when you look at the justices that joined in the opinion, concur, joined, you've got all of the liberal justices, most of the conservative justices, and you've got Gorsuch out there. And to me, it seems to be... uh, sort of a paradigm shift. My concern, if I were representing the tribes, is just they're showing a willingness to be a little more, I dare say, liberal in their interpretation of the statutes because the previous case law did specifically look for an itemization, specifically referencing the tribes, and they've just read that into this. So what effects that may have or what your fears may be going forward for any statute that is similarly drafted but anyway, for the Supreme Court watchers of the world, which I'm not necessarily one, I just I thought that was a very interesting mix of justices. It, it, it oh, is. absolutely. I mean, it, ran, it runs the gamut. I mean, the only one that's kind of out there is Thomas, which I don't that's know if you read I was going to ask you about, I was going to ask you about his concurrence. Yeah. <laughs> he wants to go far beyond. He, he concurred in the result, but he says yes. any conduct... Yes. Outside the boundaries of the reservation, there's no immunity. Correct. No one joined in that, and they're, you know, pretty focused on there. And, you know, I I do think there probably is some public policy concern with what this is, what this is dealing with. On the same day, the same Supreme Court upheld sovereign immunity for ICWA, I don't do a whole lot of family law, but, you know, it has to do with Indian children in foster homes. Basically, ICWA's federal statute, which requires the state try to place a Native American child with a Native American family before placing him with a non-Indian family. And and that would apply even if the child had been with a non-Indian family this whole time. So, uh, like I said, same day, same court, they upheld sovereign immunity in that case with a payday loan type situation. It's it's ironic. It was the same day, two, two contrary type results there. But you see Justice Gorsuch playing a key role in a lot of these decisions. And, you know, somewhat related is the McGirt decision, which I think was a pretty much a surprise when the McGirt ruling came out. 
But and I'm digressing a little bit from this bankruptcy topic. But what struck me when McGirt basically ruled most of Oklahoma is technically uh, Indian territory. How does that spill over into the civil side of things with contracts, other disputes, all of that? Have we started to see the impact on the civil side of the McGirt decision? Well, and, you know, that's huge, too. I mean, you, you've got to wonder, you know, where where are we going? Where are we going to end up? And again, the mix of judges that that have joined this opinion that are coming together uh this commonality here, I mean, an 8-1 decision, uh, it's a little stunning, I guess, to see them come together on, on an issue like this. Indian tribes, they operate a whole variety of businesses, you know, obviously heavily involved in all different kinds of commerce, have contracts. I mean, some of the standard things in there is, you know, you're dealing with a federally recognized Indian tribe. There are certain things that go along with it. The biggest one being sovereign immunity. So, yeah, you really have to wonder how this um, how this is going to play out, where where you're going to see challenges pop up, um, you know, not just in bankruptcy, but in everyday so, Stephen, what effect do you think, if any, would this opinion have on our mortgage servicing clients? I think it's a minimal effect, minimal. But then, you know, you have to deal with, you know, there are definitely tribal members that are filing bankruptcy that have mortgages. But I don't I don't think it's going to have a, a major impact on our clients. I think it had it gone the other way, it may have. But I don't think this way. Yeah, I would have to agree with you. I mean. I think all the clients we have are hardwired to respect the automatic stay that the bankruptcy code extends. And um, I'm actually, I don't believe I represent any lenders that would be tribal lenders that are issuing mortgages, but the, uh, but just wanted to wrangle that back in since typically our topics are directly focused on the default servicing industry. So it's a good point. And I do think this case stemmed from payday lending, and I think it will have an impact on some of that. I mean, which is people servicing payday loans and handling that. It's going it, to obviously it impacts that. Well, as far as tribes themselves go, just to follow up kind of on that point that I was um, talking about before. Uh, they have they operate all different types of businesses. A lot of times the first thing you think of are the casinos and Again, it, it could be lending, lending facilities. It could be, I mean, all, all different kinds of things. So for people that do represent tribes, you have to really rethink about your contracts, about the way you word them, because, you know, those typical standard protections that we used to rely on maybe aren't as strong anymore. So falling back to other ways to protect yourself um, in contracts is something that we'll have to think about in the future. Yeah, that, that's, a very, that's a very good point. I didn't think about that, that uh, any, any bankruptcy context now, you, there is no immunity for certain claims. So not just, uh, not just automatic stay related, but other, other claims. So Marilyn, when we've, do this podcast, we typically end with my favorite question, which we can either ask or not, depending on how you feel about it. But we normally will ask our guest, if you could go back and sit down with a 20-year-old version of yourself, what advice would you give that young lady? 
I would advise that young lady not to be so scared with her investments. <laughs> I think now that I'm getting older and my kids are getting older and more expensive, I wish that I would have taken more chances. You know, you, you finally get out of school, pay off your loans and get a house and, and all that stuff. And it, it, saving and investing in your future kind of takes a back seat. You just don't know. I think I would have started that and been a lot more aggressive earlier on. Good answer. All right. Well, Marilyn, thank you very much for taking the time to be our guest today on this topic. Uh, we really appreciate it. Appreciate your knowledge. Marilyn, I've been friends for a long time. It's always a pleasure to get to visit with her and visit with you and appreciate all that you do, Steve. It's, uh, yeah, thank you so much. It's, it's a very, very topical item with the decision just coming out. We truly appreciate you coming on. Thank you for having me. It's good to see you, Kent. Good to see you, too. If you like what you hear on our podcast and want to hear some more, please rate, review, and subscribe to What the M on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to visit with us on social media, we can be found at What the M Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you.